Welcome to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gil Parat. Today we are talking about acute alcohol withdrawal. And we are going to be talking about the acute physical withdrawal of alcohol. There are also acute and long-term psychological and social issues that are as important when it comes to treating alcoholism, but these are not going to be discussed in detail today. My only conflict of interest is that I am supportive of drinking the occasional Guinness beer because the taste is unparalleled. But as far as taking money from drug reps, I report no conflicts of interest. Besides peripheral taste buds, alcohol impacts many receptors in the central nervous system, including serotonin receptors. It inhibits glutamate from binding to NMDA receptors and a host of other mechanisms that have ramifications for withdrawal. Clinically speaking, in this day and age, my focus is mostly going to be on GABA, not to say the other receptors won't become more important in how we treat alcohol withdrawal, but mostly our focus has been on GABA. Understanding the neurotransmitter GABA is critical to understanding what is happening in alcohol withdrawal. GABA stands for gamma immunobutyric acid. In our central nervous system, GABA is the predominant inhibitory neurotransmitter. If something binds to the GABA receptor and increases GABA, you will depress the central nervous system or make it less excited. The word depress when discussing the central nervous system neurotransmitters is not referring to mood or spirit. Depress can also mean to reduce strength of activity, and you are decreasing the activity of the central nervous system with GABA. If you trigger a lot of GABA, such as with certain inhaled anesthetics or heavy alcohol intoxication, one can dramatically depress the central nervous system. If you increase GABA just a little bit, such as with a glass of wine or a beer, you get a relaxation and anti-anxiety effect by mildly depressing the central nervous system. If you increase GABA a great deal, perhaps with eight glasses of wine, you depress the central nervous system to a greater magnitude and possibly to the point of amnesia in regards to events that may or may not have happened. And as Lady Astor famously said, one reason I don't drink is that I want to know when I am having a good time. And if you don't remember who Lady Astor was, she was the first female member of parliament in Britain and was a fierce debater, so I don't think I will debate her point. Anyway, if you get really, really drunk, a person may depress the central nervous system to a fatal degree. In fact, you may even stop breathing, as we see in news reports occasionally from fraternity parties and other social scenarios. Ever wonder why alcoholics develop incredible tolerances to large quantities of alcohol and can function with alcohol levels that would make most people unconscious like me? Much of the answer is based on the fact that GABA receptors become insensitive to alcohol with chronic use. It takes more and more alcohol to affect the GABA receptor and inhibit the central nervous system. Suddenly, take away that constant inhibition of GABA, and now you have a state of excitation of that central nervous system, and that excitation or hyperactivity manifests as insomnia, hypertension, tremors, anxiety, and agitation, and therefore many of the things that drive nurses to the edge when they are trying to care for patients withdrawing from alcohol. 
It is regrettable that many patients on a hospital floor admitted for other reasons, such as heart attacks, trauma, infections, whatever, those patients get less care when nurses are spending a huge portion of their time managing the constant details and attention required in caring for delirium tremens of just maybe one or two patients on the unit. I love the description by the deceased master physician, Sir William Osler, about delirium tremens in his book titled The Principles and Practice of Medicine, and what he says is this, A day or two after the characteristic delirium sets in, the patient talks constantly and incoherently. He is in motion and desires to go out and attend some imaginary business. Dr. Osler published that book in 1892. It's hard for me to think of a case of delirium tremens where that description didn't nearly completely fit the patient's behavior, and we do see a lot of DTs as hospitalists. Let's talk seizures for a moment. In alcohol withdrawal, people tend to think of seizures and delirium tremens as the same thing, and that is not the reality. Seizures usually occur before delirium tremens begins. Um, most seizures happen during the first 48 hours of withdrawal. That's not to say seizures never happen during DTs, but usually they occur before the onset of DTs. What are predisposing factors that can lower the seizure threshold during DTs and possibly cause seizures? Well, obviously, very heavy use and sudden stopping is probably the biggest risk factor, but there are other factors. Haldol is a potential predisposing factor. Haldol is used to control hallucinations during DTs for some patients, but the downside is it lowers the seizure threshold. Another factor that lowers the seizure threshold in general for other types of patients is hypomagnesemia. If you are keeping up with replacing the electrolyte depletion in your alcoholics, theoretically you might reduce the chance of seizures, though I have no evidence that this is true. At a minimum, replacing magnesium and potassium may prevent arrhythmias, but potentially seizures. A board question may ask, does phenytoin or dilantin treat withdrawal seizures? And the answer to that question is no. While every patient doesn't file the textbook, there is a general timeline of when you can expect to see symptoms of withdrawal. A table of this timeline was concisely published in the journal called American Family Physician in March of 2004. And the timelines are in general as follows. At about 6 to 12 hours is when you see the minor withdrawal symptoms like insomnia, little bit of tremor, a little bit of anxiety, maybe some diaphoresis and palpitations. And then at about 12 to 24 hours, that's when you might start to get some visual and auditory hallucinations or even tactile hallucinations. And then the potential for withdrawal seizures usually starts at about 24 hours and lasts to about 48 hours. And these can be generalized tonic-clonic seizures. And then it's at 48 to 72 hours where you really see the major onset of alcohol withdrawal delirium if, if they're going to start going through that. Um, again, you're going to see much worse uh, hallucinations as far as 
visual, auditory, and tactile hallucinations. But then you're also going to start the phase of disorientation, tachycardia, hypertension, low-grade fevers, agitation, diaphoresis, and uh, all the difficult symptoms that we need to try and control. When treating DTs with benzodiazepines, you are basically replacing the abuse drug, in this case alcohol, with another drug. I started by saying that alcohol binds to the GABA receptor and therefore inhibits the central nervous system. Benzodiazepines also bind to the GABA receptor and inhibit the central nervous system. With a benzodiazepine, you are picking a sedative with a longer half-life that can then be withdrawn more slowly than alcohol. The advantage of benzos over alcohol is the ability to gradually taper. And there are many benzodiazepines out there. Probably the three main used ones that I see for alcohol are chlorodiazepoxide, also known as Librium. There's diazepam, which is, of course, Valium lorazepam, known as Ativan, and there are differences between their interactions, dosages, and most importantly, their half-lives. There are plenty of opinions regarding benzodiazepines with varying degrees of validity. Valium and Librium have pharmacologically active metabolites that may accumulate, so some people don't like using them. Some say Oxazepam, also known as Cirex, also known as a drug that I have never ordered, may be useful in liver disease because patients um, that have liver disease, the Cirex is rapidly converted to inactive water-soluble metabolites that don't accumulate. I personally use Ativan almost exclusively if you use Valium or another benzodiazepine because it's the one you have the most experience with, I wouldn't criticize you. I will quote the Journal of American Medical Association review titled The Pharmacological Management of Alcohol Withdrawal from July 9th, 1997 to back me up on that point. They say, all, and this is quoting them, all benzodiazepines appear equally efficacious in reducing signs and symptoms of withdrawal and the choice among them can be guided by the following clinical considerations. First, Long-acting agents may be more effective in preventing alcohol withdrawal seizures. Second, long-acting agents can contribute to a smoother withdrawal with fewer rebound symptoms. Third, short-acting agents may have a lower risk of over-sedation. Um, that's the end of the quote. And they also discuss other issues like cost and abuse considerations. One of my smartest attendings in residency, Dr. Dan Gilden, used to get perturbed when people would start mixing different benzodiazepines together during withdrawal. And to this day, which is a decade later, I agree with that criticism. If you put the patient on longer-acting Valium and then use a bunch of shorter-acting Ativan, it's hard to think about how much of what is really still around. It's not that Valium or Librium will necessarily work better than the Ativan, and sometimes a well-intentioned nurse will sometimes suggest that because the patient is nuts on Ativan, because the experience with the last patient that she took care of withdrawing was put on Librium and had more mild withdrawal symptoms and was easier to manage, 
probably because they didn't drink as much or was, weren't going to go through as much withdrawal. And I really do sympathize with what nurses are dealing with, this stuff constantly on the front lines with these patients. But some of these patients have huge benzodiazepine needs. And it's not that the benzodiazepine you're using is failing. Maybe the 20 milligrams of Ativan you gave wasn't doing the job because that happens. I treated a guy who started going into delirium tremens when his blood alcohol level dropped to about 200, and my guess is that he probably lives above 400 on his blood alcohol level. And over the course of 24 hours, he was given a total of 120 milligrams of IV Ativan, mostly by drip, despite giving him a few beers just to see if it might help chill him out a little bit, and despite me breaking down and not following the rule of only using one benzodiazepine and also giving a total of 20 milligrams of IV Valium and also giving Haldol, and the patient was still in full-blown DTs with all these measures, still rating really high on the CWA scale. As a side note of caution, and one of the reasons I added Valium to the Ativan in that particular case is the risk of an Ativan-induced acidosis when large quantities of Ativan are used. Propylene glycol is used as a solvent in certain pharmaceuticals like Ativan, and large doses can cause an acidosis. I'm told that's always asked on the critical care boards um, by my critical care colleagues. And those type of patients, by the way, requiring such high dosages of benzodiazepines must be treated in the ICU. They are critically ill. And in preparing this podcast, I found a case report of a patient needing 2,000 milligrams of diazepam in a single day to treat his delirium tremens. Wow. Therefore, withdrawal can range from very mild, oftentimes needing no benzodiazepines, to the psychopathic lunacy that you sometimes see on the hospital floor. If you get into a situation of severe benzodiazepine-resistant alcohol withdrawal, some have advocated the use of propofol, and those interested in learning more about that can read an article that I'll reference from the Journal of Clinical Outcomes Management just last month, August 2011, by a Dr. Richard Tovar, that's T-O-V-A-R, and that starts on page 361 in that journal. I've had two patients die of delirium tremens. One was an arrhythmia, the other went into septic shock, I presume from aspiration, and then developed all kinds of complications from there. The point being is that patients do die of delirium tremens, and I will quote the medical program up to date on the mortality of DTs. They say, quote, DTs is associated with a mortality rate of up to 5%. This figure has diminished from a 37% mortality rate reported in the early 20th century, probably as a result of earlier diagnosis, improvements in supportive and pharmacological therapies, and improved treatment of comorbid illnesses. Death usually is due to arrhythmia, complicating illnesses such as pneumonia or failure to identify an underlying problem that led to the cessation of alcohol use, such as pancreatitis, hepatitis, or central nervous system injury or infection, 
older age, pre-existing pulmonary disease, core body temperatures greater than 40 Celsius, and coexisting liver disease are associated with a greater risk of mortality. And that's the end of the quote from up to date. When it comes to benzodiazepines, how much should you use? The severity of alcohol withdrawal will depend in large part upon how much alcohol they drink and how long your patient has been drinking. The comedian Henny Youngman said, My grandmother is over 80 and still doesn't need glasses. She drinks right out of the bottle. And that type of patient may need high dosages of benzodiazepines. Thankfully, instead of guessing, we now have the CIWA scale, C-I-W-A. If your hospital isn't using a validated scale like CIWA to treat DTs, you need to get it implemented as the standard of care. With the CIWA symptom-triggered regimen, you'll end up giving much less benzodiazepines than in a fixed drug regimen. The duration of treatment will also be much shorter, making the use of CIWA a win-win for everybody, the patient, the nurses, the doctors, the hospital. What about the patient who is too delirious to take oral benzodiazepines and is pulling out his IV and too agitated and unable to stay still long enough to allow for the nursing staff to place another IV? The answer is to start with intramuscular lorazepam. When it comes to intramuscular benzodiazepines, I'll quote the textbook Pharmacotherapeutics uh, by the first author, Youngkin. And they say, quote, lorazepam intramuscularly is the preferred agent for injection because chlordiazepoxide and diazepam are poorly absorbed from the muscle, end of the quote. How about using alcohol instead of benzodiazepines if the patient is still not desiring to quit alcohol, meaning they tell you, I'm not going to stop drinking, If the patient is not in the hospital for a complication of alcohol, such as an active ulcer or cirrhosis complications, and is there for something else, let's say COPD exacerbation, why wouldn't you use alcohol instead of benzodiazepines is my question. What is the point of going through six days of inpatient delirium tremens if the patient tells you she doesn't plan on quitting after discharge? All you accomplish, in my opinion, is the utilization of a great deal of resources, as well as a chance of mortality that alcohol withdrawal carries if we refuse to carry and give alcohol beverages at the bedside. I know many have moral objections to alcohol and disagree with me on that point um, and don't think we should give alcoholics booze in the hospital, but I order it for my patients all the time, as did my attendings in medical school, particularly at the VA, as some of my attendings in residency did, and as does the surgical trauma service at my hospital. The Various effects of alcohol on the different organs that you must think about are numerous, as we all know. Um, Booze depresses myocardial contractility and can cause a severe cardiomyopathy. Alcohol causes anemias, gynecomastia, cirrhosis, esophageal cancer, and all kinds of other problems. Those topics can warrant their own podcast, and some like cirrhosis probably would take hours and several podcasts to cover. Therefore, I will focus on a few things you always need to address in these patients instead of all the possibilities of things you may need to address. 
The nutritional depletion seen in alcoholics can cause all kinds of havoc. Um, W.C. Field said that, quote, once during prohibition, I was forced to live for days on nothing but food and water, end quote. And um, I guess we deal with the opposite problem with alcoholism sometimes. A feared nutritional deficiency is that of thiamine, also known as vitamin B1. Not only do alcoholics fail to take in enough thiamine in the diet, they don't absorb it as well in their GI tract and don't store thiamine as well in their liver. And the neurologic consequence of that for some alcoholics is the Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. What is the classic triad of Wernicke-Korsakoff? Encephalopathy, oculomotor dysfunction, and gait ataxia. The full triad does not need to be present. The actual brain lesions of Wernicke encephalopathy are seen at autopsy in those without the full triad. In fact, they aren't necessarily the same disease, and they were described differently uh, at different times, despite being linked to thiamine deficiency and despite them rolling off the tongue so easily together. There is Wernicke's encephalopathy, and then there is Korsakoff's syndrome. Korsakoff's syndrome, sometimes called Korsakoff psychosis, has a classic behavior of confabulation. These patients make up stories because they can't remember anything because of their severe memory loss. I suspect they tell you the truth if they could, but they don't want to look crazy with their amnesia, so they make the story up, and therefore appear more crazy as a result. The ocular motor dysfunction of Wernicke's encephalopathy can be a range of things. Maybe just nystagmus, but gaze palsies, double vision, unequal pupils, non-reactive pupils, and even total loss of eye movement can be the presentation. Basically, if there is an unexplained eye issue in a drinker of alcohol, consider Wernicke's encephalopathy in the differential. Therefore, it is important to give thiamine to your alcoholics so you can avoid this devastating possibility. Of importance, give the thiamine prior to infusing the patient with glucose. Carbohydrate loading is thought to precipitate Wernicke's encephalopathy in those with thiamine deficiency. Alcoholic patients have enough problems and giving them an iatrogenic one is the last thing we want to do. Well, how about other medications? How about beta blockers in acute alcohol withdrawal? There was a randomized double-blind study published in the New England Journal of Medicine on October 10th of 1985, and to quote part of the discussion of those results, quote, patients receiving atenolol had a shorter length of stay and required significantly smaller amounts of benzodiazepines than those receiving placebo, end of the quote. The use of beta blockers to reduce autonomic manifestations of withdrawal seems reasonable. Others have voiced their worry about beta blockers, and those worries seem similar to me to the worry of using them in diabetics, in which beta blockers can potentially mask symptoms of hypoglycemia. And some say they are concerned beta blockers may mask withdrawal symptoms and signs used to measure symptoms on the CUA scale, like tremors and anxiety. Until somebody proves to me that it's a bad thing, I still use them in many patients in addition to benzodiazepines, depending on the clinical circumstances. 
Some doctors use clonidine to ameliorate symptoms of withdrawal. Since it can drop the blood pressure so much, caution is advised, but I couldn't find evidence that it is a bad idea to use clonidine. Doctors do use carbamazepine tapers to help with withdrawal symptoms. This seems to be particularly the case in Europe, and there is data to support that practice. This seems to be mostly for mild to moderate withdrawal and therefore mostly confined to the outpatient treatment. And this is a hospice podcast, so I won't dive into the studies about carbamazepine. Phenobarbital is sometimes used. It is really long-acting. Apnea scares me. If you use it, just use it cautiously. Lastly, Always consider the possibility that your patient may be withdrawing from more than one drug. Polysubstance abuse is common. Perhaps the reason they are off the charts on the SIWA scale is they do indeed need a lot more benzodiazepines, or maybe they are also withdrawing from heroin or cocaine or whatever other drug. And when you have that situation, you and the nursing staff are in for a long night, or as hospital administrators like to say, a special clinical opportunity. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with Dr. Gil Parat. If you find any value in these podcasts, please do write me a review on iTunes or at least just click a rating for me on the stars. doesn't take long. And if you're interested in end-of-life care issues, I do have a website, www dot gilparat that's g-i-l-p-o-r-a-t dot com in which uh, i have a page of end of life care facts among many other things on that website thanks for listening have a great day